Welcome to today's episode of Healthy Kajuju the Podcast. I'm your host Kajuju Kyogora and in today's episode I'm very very excited to be joined by Juliet Kennedy, the founder of Greenspoon. Welcome Juliet. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, in your lovely home. Thank you for hosting us. Greenspoon is an online shop for artisan food in Kenya for people who care about what they eat. And Greenspoon has had a wonderful journey and growth over the last few years and I'm very excited for you to share your insights on what it takes to build a successful brand. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kajiji. So first and foremost, uh, what is Greenspoon? I mean, Greenspoon is the first shop of its kind um, in Kenya that has adopted a philosophy of ensuring quality, environmental impact, and community impact in all of its products. What does this mean? That's exactly right. You hit it, hit the nail on the head, to be honest. Um, what it means is, first of all, I wanted to find a way to give customers more transparency about where their food comes from. And once you start to look into that, you realize that there's just so much more to the story of food. And those stories are worth telling. And they're also really important for us to know as consumers, you know, every single purchase that we make is a vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And I feel that if you go in blind, then it's not your fault, but you may be making some really disastrous choices, um, both in terms of your own health and in terms of the health of the planet. So I really wanted to kind of change that and also just open up a platform where the artisans could find a route to market that wasn't really, really expensive um, or, you know, required massive scale-up, which they weren't looking to do immediately. Um, and I felt like the online space was going to be able to, you know, allow us to do all of that. Um, I think in terms of our own health, food is absolutely crucial. Most of us eat at least once a day. Um, but in terms of community impact and um, environmental impact as well, I've learned so much along the way, um, having set up this business, about you know, how you can farm food or create food that actually has a really positive impact on the planet. Yeah, so it doesn't, you know, I, th I think it doesn't have to be negative. And I think that the more we know about where our food's coming from, the more informed our choices will be. Yeah. Wow. And what inspired you to start Greenspoon? So I had Saskia, who's now nearly six. Uh -huh. um, and about six months into having her, obviously I started weaning, um, weaning her off. And, you know, I, I think there's this massive shift that happens in anyone who has a child where you suddenly realize I have to, what am I putting into this beautiful, innocent human being? I need to really take care of that. But also as a parent... I need to survive, you know, I need to look after this human being, get them ready for the world, so I've got to be healthy. So it's kind of like this big shift where it's no longer just about, like, coasting through life and maybe picking up a great job and having some holidays and so on. Um, suddenly you're looking at this really long-term commitment that you've just made. Um, and so when I was weaning her, I sort of started to think, well, hang on, like, how safe is this food that I'm giving her? and wanted to know more. So I started to ask around, and in a lot of the big supermarkets, I wasn't able to get any answers, and I found that quite frustrating. 
So then I started to source directly. I know some people who produce food anyway, so I just went to them and said, can I buy from you? Um, and it, then I started to have conversations with those people and say, you know, how is it? How are you finding the route to market? I was doing a lot of shopping at the farmer's market on a Saturday and I would stop and chat to people and say, so what happens between now and next week if I would like some more of your products? Oh, well, you can, you can SMS me, you can WhatsApp me, you can Instagram me, you can Facebook me, you can call me or you can email me. That's six channels. I was like, how are you dealing with all of those different channels whilst at the same time making this amazing nut butter or whatever it was that they were making? Oh yeah, they say, yeah, you know, it is actually really challenging because my main... My main calling in life is to make amazing nut butter. Anyway, so as I was having those conversations, I realized that there's two sides of this story, the customer side and then also the artisan side. And um, the, the difficulty of actually looking after customers when your primary thing is, is producing great food. Um, and that is how the seed germinated, if you like. And then... There was a light bulb moment, Kajiji, I have to say, like, I find it such a cliche, and I was a little bit embarrassed to say, yes, I had a light bulb moment, because I never <laughs> believed in them, mm -hmm. but I had been, um, I'd had a slightly frustrating day going through a Facebook group, trying to find the number of somebody who produced, um, I can't even remember what it was now, and my husband got home, um, Wiz, and I said, gosh, you know, it's just so annoying that there isn't one website I can go to and buy all these delicious artisan products and have them delivered to the house because I've got this tiny baby. I don't really want to leave the house. But at the same time, I'm sending all these bottle bottles halfway across town to pick up all these strange ingredients and it's costing a fortune. And we just kind of looked at each other and he was like, I think that's your next business. And ding, that was the light bulb moment. Yeah, wow. And do you get feedback from parents who have probably gone through the same thing that you went through your daughter and now through this platform you've created have found a way that they didn't have before? Yeah, I mean, I think we get a tremendous amount of feedback mm. um, from our customers, which is really great. I love it um, because I think without that, you're, you're only able to grow so much. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the feedback's absolutely crucial. But what happened first was more like I did sort of my market research, which was really just conversations with as many people as I could find who were willing to talk about food and their journey. And most people are actually quite happy to talk about food. Um, so, you know, in those conversations, I realized that people were experiencing similar frustrations at the time. Now, when we've, now we're, we're like nearly four years down the line with the business, um, I think the most of the feedback that I get is people just saying, we really trust you. So if you've put something on the site, then we trust it because it's gone through your vetting process. We know that you've tried everything. Like I literally taste everything that goes on the site, even if it's something I don't really like. Um, but I have to be able to have that conversation with any customer. Yes, I've tasted it. Yes, I believe in it. Yes, I've checked the ingredients. Yes, I've done the vetting process. So it's been really important to have that part of the journey. And then, and then, Actually, we've grown to the stage now where I realise that, like, forget about my waistline. It's just the sheer responsibility of trying everything gets to be a little much. And it's quite subjective as well. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years ago, I set up um, my tasting table committee, which is a select number of customers. And they all have slightly different interests and they buy different things. So when something new comes on board, then I'll often ask for a number of samples and send them to the tasting table committee 
members and say, I'd really like your feedback on everything. So now it's not just about me making that decision, which would be too much and actually a bit unfair. That sounds it. like the best job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's where, where I do, do get I sign up. <laughs> people are all, often asking me, can I join the yeah. table? <laughs> so it is, it's a great position to have. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, people, I think, have found that through having Green Spoon there, they've got a channel through which to purchase products where they know a lot more about where they've come from, how they've been processed, and who are the people behind them as well. Because I think that really counts. You know, we've been through a stage in consumerism where it's been very faceless. And in the last five years, people have started to stand up and demand a little bit more transparency. Like, I really want to know who are the humans behind this business? Because every, every business is driven by humans. And connecting with those other humans is important. You know, you're, you're, supporting, you're supporting a massive ecosystem through those choices. Um, so I think those changes have come about and it's been, it was a timely moment to start Green Spoon. Um, but a lot of it was just like, it felt so risky to start a business mm-hmm. at that stage in life. At that stage in life, you mean with young children? Yeah, young children, and I was going to something I really didn't know mm-hmm. that much about. Like, I know quite a lot about digital marketing, and I love it, but I didn't... And you're very good at it. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't really know... I hadn't actually done any e-commerce before, and I hadn't worked in retail, mm-hmm. and I hadn't done food. Yeah. Apart from cooking a lot. And Your like, background is in social anthropology. Exactly, yeah. I, I read social anthropology at um, the University of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And when I look back on it, you know, people were often like, oh, social anthropology is just like such a fluffy degree, you know, what are you going to do after that? Um, but actually, I was talking to my mum about this the other day. When you look back on it, I realised that anthropology has underpinned a lot of the different choices that I've made in terms of my career. And actually now what I realised with Green Spoon, which is the anthropological element of it, is is connecting the humans to each other, but also understanding behavioural change, right? Because we are a little bit at the beginning of the curve in this region when it comes to e-commerce. And we've, you know, so we're sort of waiting on and also trying to help mobilise people into some kind of behavioural change around the way they shop. So that is definitely, like, goes back to my anthropological yes, yes, yeah. studies. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's quite a wide degree, actually. But I think when you look at, you know, the, the, the wider mission for Greenspoon has slightly changed since the beginning. So at the beginning, it was all about the transparency, and it was really all about the food. And now I find myself in this position where I'm almost ready to be quite an activist in terms of the planet, right? So... I feel like if your behavior changes around the most like the most fundamental thing to our survival, which is what we consume, then it can start to change in so many different areas of your life. So I think, for instance, if you decide, okay, I'm only going to buy local because I want to support the local economy and I don't want to buy products that have been flown halfway across the world, then it can start to reverberate out into other parts of life for instance I'm only going to travel locally this year because I don't want the carbon footprint Um, and actually Kenya and this region has got so much to discover 
or um, it could mean that you become more conscious of what you give children at children's birthday parties, which is something I do like on a weekly basis, going to different oh. kids' parties. And the default setting is to go and buy something deliciously plastic, right, which has probably been made in China and is possibly going to break in, you know, a matter of days, if not hours. Um, and once you become a little bit more conscious about that decision, you might actually think, do you know what, I'm going to give them a packet of tomato seeds and uh, maybe some instructions on how to start planting and growing your own food. Or I'll give them seed balls because it's really fun to chuck stuff out of the window, but it's naughty unless it's a seed ball and you're on safari and you're lobbing it out of the window and it's going to plant some, it's going to grow trees. So. I feel like this is just such a great opportunity to change so much about the way people engage with what they're doing in terms of consuming. Um, and, and, and that can just have huge a huge effect on the whole way they lead their lives. And then hopefully that will help us to put the brakes on a little bit of this whole climate crisis that I really believe we are facing. And I, I think it's real. Yeah. I absolutely love how it's so evident that you're not just thinking about the what what business am i building what brand have i created what products um are we providing to our customers but also the why like that is so evident when you speak about it and you've touched a bit on climate and greenspoon recently I started using an electric van, yeah. a beautiful green electric van, and you carry out 50% of your deliveries. Yeah, up to 50%. Yeah. Okay. So that has been amazing because about this time last year, sort of in March when it's Earth Day, I wrote this big thing on Instagram like, you know, I just hope that one day we can have solar-powered vehicles that are delivering your goods and we can really become a properly green company. Um, and these are the kind of things that we wish and dream for. And I was like tagging Tesla and all this kind of thing. And amazingly, and this is where like, I guess there's a power of visualization and manifesting your dreams, mm. uh, which I don't, like I'm not that kind of, um, I don't know, I don't usually think along those lines, but now I've started to really believe in them. Um, so that was in March, and then in September, I'm driving through town, and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm following a van that says drive electric. And I basically stalked them all the way back to their office, <laughs> and then made my introductions. I was like, we've got an electric van. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, what we do is sell electric cars. And I said, but I, I, I want the van. <laughs> anyway, so um, quite a few months of discussions and back and forth. And we actually came to an agreement where we could have a partnership um, to begin with this year. And then we'll see about, you know, slowly buying the van. Um, but it's just so, so exciting to have got to a place now where as a company, we have one electric van doing up to 50% of our deliveries. Uh, we have solar panels at the office. Um, and so the van is charging off solar. Um, and those solar panels, when the van is out, is actually those panels feed into our, you know, generating our fridges and freezers and the office and so on. So it's actually, you know, it's, it's really, really amazing, I think, that we have got this opportunity and that it's working. Like, that's the other thing. You know, I think there's a lot of unknowns around electric cars. And particularly in Kenya, people say, well, where do you charge it? I mean, there's nowhere to charge electric cars or electric vans. And they're kind of right. I mean, there are 
some charging stations at the hub and I think at Two Rivers and yes. such like for the taxi company in Nokia. Um, but I think that there's an opportunity here to, to start demanding it, right? So if customers start to say, we really want charging stations or I'm going to buy an electric car anyway because one charge should give you around 150 kilometers. So if you're, if you're using the vehicle just to go around Nairobi, that should kind of be enough, you know, to get home and then plug it in again and charge overnight. So obviously... Hope, hoping that you don't get stuck in traffic. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's amazing because when you get stuck in traffic, you're not using any power. Oh, yeah. yeah. So... Um, if you're at a standstill, that is, anyway. Um, but I think the, you know, the other thing is that, um, just to bear in mind, so that people don't think that I'm completely making things up, when the van comes back at night, obviously it has to charge off the grid, but I kind of see it as offset because during the day, the solar panels have been actually supporting the whole system. So if you were to get an electric car, you would probably install some solar panels at home and have a charging station and that should be enough to charge your vehicle, go and do what you need to do during the day. And a lot of people are just driving to work and driving back. That's, that's true. Like, that's, that's totally doable yes. in an electric car. Yes. And there's kind of no reason why we can't all... Anybody who has two vehicles, right? I know that a lot of my friends are like, well, obviously you can't go on safari with an electric car. And I'm like, no, you're totally right. You cannot go on safari yet with an <laughs> electric car. Um, but you can definitely do your Nairobi stuff with an electric car and I think that I, you know how like in this part of the world we've often jumped a number of sort of developmental stages that other countries have had to go through so for instance take the jump straight onto internet through tele through phones smartphones rather than laptops desktops whatever right which other parts of the world had to do I can quite see Kenya just going, you know what, we need charging stations everywhere, do it, boom. And suddenly we'll have them in every shopping mall and people will be driving there, charging up, driving off again. And it'll, it could become something so mainstream. That's like, true. Quickly. Yeah, like the kind of jump that we had with the plastic bags, which, you know, a lot of developed countries still haven't got to the stage that we are at. Yeah. So that's very true. I mean, I think in so many ways, Kenya is way ahead of the game. You know, we travel and we speak to people about how they do their recycling or um, how they're cutting down on plastic bag use, whatever it is. And, and I mean, I know that I'm at one end of the scale, right? It's super, it's my business to be super conscious about it. But I'm often really shocked that they're not more conscious of the decisions that they're making, the choices that they're making. Um, and I think that as a country, we are strides ahead in many ways. So much to be proud of. Yeah. There is a notion that um, going green and being environmentally conscious can be more expensive than not. So do you think it's a trade-off uh, for Greenspoon with your bottom line? Well, um, it's not cheap to buy mm -hmm. the van, but actually to charge it up. Once you've got all the infrastructure in place, it makes a lot of sense because it can cost about $5 to charge the vehicle and then you get 150 kilometers. So when you weigh that up against fuel, it actually does make sense. But I think in terms of your wider question, there are definitely some, some decisions we make that are based much more on the responsibility we have as a business rather than the economic sense that it makes. I think also that as an entrepreneur, you know, a lot of us who are entrepreneurs are very creative uh, and we're sort of following the big idea and 
in getting to the sort of, well, there's no end goal as such, but, you know, in getting the thing off the ground, it's really all about fulfilling the service that you need to provide. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs suffer from the affliction of not actually caring or wanting to look at figures that much anyway. <laughs> so I luckily have some people who keep me in line with stuff like that, but otherwise I'd make every single decision based on, you know, the the, the core belief that I have about, you know, trying to make the planet a better place. Um, but some of the other things we've done are, are like working with our suppliers on their packaging, giving them feedback, saying, look, you know, I know that you're starting with this plastic, but is there something else you could use? You know, our customers really, really care about it. We have quite a few customers who will just send back packaging without, you know, like they won't ask or anything. They'll just send it back and it's their way of saying, this is completely superfluous or we don't agree with it or you need to find a way to get rid of this because it's just not required. Um, and, we, you know, that's, that's quite a big, powerful you know thing to do as a customer to even be able to do it and for us not to we don't make a fuss about it we take it on board we give them feedback we say we're doing what we can with the supplier on this particular product we're so sorry this is the reason they have to pack it like this for now but they're looking at alternatives and it's truthful you know we had one customer who said look i just don't understand why your sausages have to come on a polystyrene tray and then be vacuum packed in plastic so immediately I said, actually, valid point. I don't know why it has to be like that. Call the supplier and he said, fine, as long as your customers don't mind that your sausages might not be absolutely uniform, then we won't do it on a tray. And I said, great, lose the tray. Literally that week, no more trays. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, it's the power of um, conversation. And that's also why I really like working with very small producers because a lot of them are very nimble. And you give them that feedback. And some of them say, that's fantastic. We don't want to use the trays either. We just thought we had to. And all they need is kind of like permission from the customer, which I'm I'm just communicating to them. And then they go, okay, great. We'll change the way we're doing things. So sometimes it's as easy as just giving some feedback. And I think some customers forget that they can do that. Yes. They don't have to do it in, a, in an aggressive or carly way. They can just say, listen heads up, I thought this was a little unnecessary or I thought maybe you could change to this type of packaging. So we have a lot of conversations going on like that. Um, and we do things like we plant trees and stuff like that so to try and offset the paper that we use. Um, quite early on in the journey, we made invoices optional. Um, and then actually I've kind of made it almost quite difficult to get a paper invoice. So you really have to like, you have to find the box and click it if you want your invoice because it's actually not necessary you're getting everything on email um, there's no need for us to print more paper um, but we also looked into things like our servers so we host the website um, with the third greenest um, hosting company in the world which is based in Holland so they're partly powered by wind and solar so it's kind of looking through if you want to be a truly green business you need to look at a lot of different elements and I would say we're only a fraction of the way of looking through absolutely everything that we do but we're trying so hard to change the things that aren't good and we're always open to suggestions. Yes, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's fantastic. So how did you come up with the name Green Spoon? So the name Green Spoon is really well, we think it's a great name. It um, is. You get to have a green van running yeah, around Nairobi. Exactly. So the green is supposed to sort of stand for the connection to the earth. 
um, and the environment and sort of that transparency around the food products that we sell. And then the spoon is obviously just bringing it to your mouth and the reality of um, being connected to your food and really... I'm a huge believer in just really enjoying the flavour of food as well as the nourishing side of it. Um, and I can cry over a bad meal because I'm like, that was such a wasted opportunity. <laughs> I want to eat well at every meal that I have. And okay, we all get lazy from time to time. And, you know, I can really kick myself when I've had a bad breakfast or something like that. And I just didn't take the time to think about it. Um, and I think we all go through that, right? But I I feel like um, I'm getting much better at preparing four meals in advance. I do like menu planning on a Sunday so that we're kind of sorted for the week. And also with kids, you just kind of have to do that. Otherwise, life spirals out of control too quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think the, the words green and spoon actually just work really well together. Um, but that's what they stand for. Yeah. That transparency and then that action of bringing the spoon to your mouth yeah. and enjoying it. And when you were starting out, did you have some money saved up um, that you used as capital to set up the shop? We didn't have a huge amount of money, uh, but yeah, we had a little bit saved up um, and we decided to put that into buying our first container, which is what you used to come and deliver your first energy bars to. Yes, right outside your house. <laughs> exactly. So in the garden, classic startup style. Um, and... Yeah, so we put that into the container. We stole a fridge from the house to start. <laughs> we bought a few more fridges and freezers. Um, yeah, so we had a bit of capital to get going, which was really great. But because we've never had investors, we've had to become a self-sufficient company from very early on. You know, I think we had enough to get us going for like three months, and that was it. So... It felt very risky. It was very risky, actually. Um, and I still kind of can't believe we're here because there were so many moments where, you know, the sort of steep learning curves around cash flow and just managing money, um, which I hadn't had to do before. Um, but because it's a very transactional business and it's quite fast moving in many ways, um, you have to be on top of the finances all the time. Otherwise, it can really run away with you. So, yeah, I think, you know, we needed that capital to start up. And also, we were fortunate because my husband was earning a stable income. And still is, thank goodness. Um, and I think when people say, oh, you're so, that's, you're so lucky to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I really, really want to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. I always try to balance out the enthusiasm for entrepreneurship which I have naturally and I, I love starting things and I love the challenge but balance that with actually the realities of life and I think I often say actually I'm really privileged to be able to do it because my husband has a stable income and Wiz and I have always had this sort of um we've we've sort of both gone around in different cycles where I'm the main earner and he's the risk taker and then he's the main earner and I'm the risk taker Aww. and we've kind of switched up like that you know depending on what comes along in life and he was 100% behind this move to set up Green Spoon and, and we knew it would be you know it'd be definitely two to five years of really hard slog which is most most new businesses and I think um 
it is a privilege, right? Because you still have to pay the bills and you still have to look after your kids and you still have to do the things you've got to do to survive. And you need an income for that. And I did not have an income from Greenspan for a long time. So um, it's always worth a note of caution, I think, before you jump in. And that was the way I did it. Other people, you might get investors on board or you might have a really robust business plan that you're pretty convinced you're going to be able to achieve. And so you know exactly when you'll start having enough income to pay your own salary. But either way, it's definitely also worth thinking, what's my plan B if it doesn't work out? Um, am I going back into employment? And also not being afraid of failure. Like, I've never really been afraid. For me, failure is growth. It's not a bad thing. Um, so I've always thought, you know, if Greenspoon fails, my CV is going to look awesome because look at all the things I've learned through that failure. I don't think no one will ever employ me. You know, I think it's okay. I'll... I'll go out there and find a job. Um, so I think, you know, you know how like out there you can see these inspirational quotes like, just jump in with two feet and all that kind of thing. I kind of agree with like jump off the edge of the cliff, but make sure you've got a parachute or a trampoline at the bottom to land on. <laughs> <laughs> I've never so, had the trampoline. <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> it's actually not a very good analogy because you bounce too high. You just get anyway. <laughs> Wow. Okay. And that's, um, that's beautiful. And uh, so one of the company's core values is selling the highest quality products made with authentic ingredients. What challenges come along with this? There are definitely some challenges. For instance, if you look at dairy, if you really want to understand the quality of the milk, you have to go all the way back to what the cows are eating and whether there are antibiotics and hormones and so on being used. For me, it's also about the conditions in which the animals are raised. So um, we stay well away from any kind of battery or industrialised conditions because it stresses the animals and then the products, the products are not the best quality. Um, when we look at other products that have perhaps been processed, um, we also ask a lot of questions around where the ingredients come from and how they're sourced and so on. And there's a really fine balance between um, being extremely fussy about the ingredients that go in and being realistic about what's available on the market. So we try to make sure that we achieve that balance. You know, people say to me, surely everything should be organic. And I say, organic, can somebody... Like, there are very, very few certified organic farms in this country. And I'm not a regulator. So, and we, we never set out to be regulators either. So we do as much research as we can um, into the whole thing. And my always my last question to myself is, like, would I feed this to the kids without any kind of, like, tingling in my gut that it might not be the right thing for them? And if the answer is, yeah, I feel, I feel confident about giving this to the kids, then... I know that I've done enough research and that it's going to be the right kind of product for Green Spoon. But it's not easy. Um, I think there's not a lot of traceability in this market about where food is coming from, particularly vegetables and fruits. Um, and, you know, there are some products that have to be imported. So definitely that adds to the carbon footprint. We can't do everything 100% local. Um, but we're just trying our best. And when people come to us with a product where I think, 
do you know, I have a supplier who could make this locally. I tried to actually rather sort of empower and build up the supplier by saying, do you think this is something you could do? Because I don't really want to import it from another part of the world. And, you know, that's, that's also just a great way of um, increasing what we can offer as a country in Kenya and also reducing what we're importing. Wow. And you've got a great team. I think you're about five of you now. Actually, including me, we're seven. Oh, seven. Yeah. Wow. And I've seen you post pictures um, of you and your team having meals together, like the Christmas dinner that you have annually. Uh, how do you keep them inspired? I'm so lucky with the team because they're just so, everybody's so enthusiastic and energetic anyway. Yes. Um, but what we, we try to have a flat, we have a flat team. We don't really have hierarchy in the team. So we've always had this approach where all of us are members of the team and without all of us working together, it will not happen. So we don't have any kind of um, incentivized bonuses for individuals based on individual activity or an individual work. It's all like one big team bonus that we split. Um, when something goes wrong, uh, we have various systems, but the main thing is that everybody talks to each other and then we work out a plan together, a solution. And it's been like that from day one. I've always said to everybody, let's just discuss what happened from all the way from the beginning through to the end of this problem. And then let's all suggest what we think the solution could be. And then we'll decide together what we're gonna do. We have a great sense of teamwork um amongst the team and then we just do fun stuff and in the office there's always a lot of banter you know and I think when you're a leader and you're trying to drive things forward it's you have to really think about going in with the right energy uh, because your energy can totally shift the way everybody is for for the day and it's a lot of responsibility sometimes you just have to think I'm gonna have to put on my game face and get in there and act you know, a little bit. If you're just having a tricky day, the kids woke you up at 4am, you're actually quite grumpy. Um, you can't go into the office like that. You have to really just think about it. Um, we also discovered like, probably about 18 months ago, I discovered that me going in at eight o'clock really disrupted the dispatch system. Oh. Because I would find myself getting involved in stuff that actually, it's not my, you know what I mean? Like the team are doing it perfectly without me. So actually, they kind of asked me to come in a little later, <laughs> which is great. Okay, so then I come in a little later and I have a look at what's going on and we and we chat and I always see Anton and Dennis before they go and we chat about what they're doing that day yes. and I involve them in trying to find solutions even around our tech. So for yeah. instance, you know, we've been trying to improve the tech around delivery timings, which is just so difficult here. Um, and it's a constant dialogue between Anton and Dennis and I. Okay, guys, you know, I need a rough idea of the time slots that you're getting to each area. Then maybe we can give people more specific time slots. You know, we, maybe we work off that rather than the tracking system or maybe we work off that rather than another system. So, and we go back and forth, back and forth. They're like, okay, fine, we'll collect the data for a week then. Let's have a look at it. Um, and it's really great because I feel like they have a deeper understanding of the business and what we're trying to do here. Um, also, you know, when when this podcast comes out, I'll ask them to listen to it because sometimes <laughs> I don't have time to tell them 
about the wider mission or yeah. about how you know they can't unlock what's happening in my brain but when somebody else asks me that question it comes out then it can be really enlightening so we try and share lots I share podcasts that I found inspiring um we have like a walking challenge in the office this year because we all want to get a little fitter um so and we all agree on this stuff together it's not like top down guys You've all got to get fitter. Here's your walking challenge for you. You know, <laughs> sort of say to them. Well, you wouldn't walk in here anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we sort of chat and say, what would you like to do this year? Mm. And they're like, oh, I, I don't know. And I said, well, I was wondering if we could actually start to live the Green Spoon message as much as we deliver it, you know, and, and to that end, be fit and healthy and eat the right thing. And the reaction is mostly like, yeah, that sounds great. So... And then somebody, Miller, suggested, let's do a walking challenge. I said, that sounds fantastic. I need to walk more. Um, so we just tried to involve everybody in everything. Yes, basically. that's fantastic. And how did you get to have such a wonderful team um, put together? I know when you began, it was just Miller, but it has grown over time. It's grown really organically. So as and when we've needed somebody to join the team, um, we've put the word out. It's tended to be more through word of mouth, um, although we do get a lot of CVs sent in, which is really great, and I keep them on file for when we need them. Um, but essentially, yeah, just you know that word of mouth, and I guess Miller's always been such an enthusiastic person to have on board and I've looked for the same kind of character traits when we've taken more people on board and you get a gut feeling about people you know we spend more time at work than we do at home most of us so you kind of want to build up a family that where you're all going to look out for each other and you're going to have fun together and it's an open it's kind of an open atmosphere where you can make a few jokes and you know it's to go back to like being in the leader leadership position, I think people are often scared of being too nice or scared of being too involved with their team because then it might uh, diminish their power. I've never found that to be the case. And, you know, maybe it will come back to bite me and I'll have a problem down the line. But to date, we've, we've always all got along and... Um, and at the same time, I've still been able to say to my team, look, honestly, this standard isn't good enough or, you know, have those difficult conversations without feeling like I'm ruining the team spirit. Yes. Yeah. 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 I guess you can either demand respect or kind of and respect through that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it, actually. Earn or demand. And I'd like to think that I'm more on yeah. the earn side. <laughs> I think you are. So you have also forged a strong connection with your customers. How do you make sure that you have that you maintain that kind of connection with your customers, and why is it important? So the customers are really the lifeblood of the company, and I've always felt that it's so so important to be totally honest. I mean, that's what our business is built on: is the transparency around the food and where it's coming from and the whole story. So that actually, that thread of honesty goes through everything that we do. And um, in my communications with the customers as well, I I always try to, I mean, it's always highly personal. Um, It's personal in that I think a lot of the customers have a really 
good insight into why we're doing this and what the big mission is. Um, we try to connect with them. I haven't been so good lately, but we try to connect on a Sunday night with ideas of what to cook that week. And I think that adds value, you know, to people's lives. They think, oh, that's a good idea. Okay, yeah, I'll try that. And then they can click through and find the recipe on our site. Um, and hopefully it's just making life a little bit easier. If and when we have problems, I try to just, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm honest about it. I say, yes, I know we've, we've really messed up this time. I'm so sorry. And I think it's what I look for in other brands when I'm very loyal to a brand is that I, I just would love, I, I like the honesty and I want an acknowledgement. If something, I mean, things go wrong. Like it's humans, the human condition. Uh, we can't always be perfect. Things don't always go to plan. So I think rather, you know, owning, owning the issue when it happens is really important to me. And that's what we also try to do as a team. Like just say, it's actually fine to say, guys, I really messed up today. Um, I need some help with this. And that's, that's way, way nicer. And it's much more in line with what my customers are looking for than actually, no, it's your problem. We're not interested. And we are interested, like it's super genuine. I want, I really want customers to come to Green Spoon, understand the mission, taste the food, see the difference, and then stay loyal. And I think the only way to retain that loyalty is to develop a relationship. Yes. And has social media played a large role in that? Definitely. Definitely it has. I mean, I know there's loads of negatives around social media and I know it can be addictive and um, there's a lot of fake news out there and so on. But it's an amazing way to build a community online. And I think for a business that's solely online, you know, that doesn't have a physical shop or anything, it's exactly where we're supposed to be to build that community. And I just love the engagement that you can get and the feedback you can get, especially with things like stories now. I feel that that's just so powerful and a wonderful way to kind of really give people an insight into how your business is working or what you're doing that day or what you think about something that's just happened in the news. You know, I think it's really cool. Um, I try to spend a little less time. I have that reminder thing on my phone saying you've spent 30 minutes on Instagram today. Oh, yeah. And I try and get off. I have the point. same, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think 30 minutes is actually enough um, a lot of the time anyway. Um, so, yeah, social yeah. media has played a huge, huge role for us. It's been really, really important. Yes, yes. I think once you find that balance on how to use social media, you can really maximize just the immense potential that it can have, especially with engagement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when we see that, you know, like a great majority of our customers are accessing the site on mobile. So I know a lot of people are like, they don't really want to leave Instagram to go to a website. But I think they see us there, they come out of Instagram and they go onto the website on mobile. Yes. So I think, you know, in terms of driving business, it's also really important. It's building a community and then yes. driving business as well. Yes. There are times when I go through some of the pictures, like of how Healthy Kajuju began. And I mean, we began at markets. And so we used to go to the market at Padiams in Karen. And I remember the first time we met was at Padiams. Yes. <laughs> And I mean, Greenspoon has just grown so much and so wonderfully since we met. 
How do you manage that kind of growth that you've had? Um, <laughs> I think uh, day by day. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I said at the beginning, I haven't been in retail, haven't been in e-commerce, haven't really been in selling food at all. So the whole thing feels like a vertical learning it's not a, it's like a learning jump it's not a learning curve it is just completely vertical um and that's the honest truth of it i think in terms of managing the growth there i'm now in a position and have been for like a year where i can look a little bit further forward and just start you know plan things and it's a little bit less of the helter skelter than it was for the first couple of years um and you know, now I, I am looking a bit more like, okay, is there going to be, in six months' time, are we going to have a role that we need to fill in this particular department? I'm, I'm calling it a department. There are no departments, but you know what I mean? Like, in this, will I need this particular role within our team? Um, and I think planning for growth is now something I'm starting to do because I'm seeing that we've got to a point where, as a business, it's working quite well. It's working really well, actually. Um, but I'm always I'm very cautious about being over optimistic. So I'll be the last person to spend money on capital um, infrastructure if we don't need it. You know, I'm I'm really believe in that lean startup um, approach. And for us as a business, you know, it's been a lot about the people, um, and it's been a lot about finding the right suppliers to support us through this. Um, and also just, you know, looking after the customers that we've got. So now we're going into another stage where we can sort of start to plan for that growth. But I think I think there's only so much planning you can do, you know. I'm not, I'm not, and I also don't hang my hat on, we have to do X, Y, or Z because it's in my growth plan. Yes. I mean, I will absolutely go for it once I'm convinced. But if at some point... The evidence shows or or I get a gut feeling this is not going to work. I'm also not afraid to kind of slightly pivot out of that and move along. For instance, last year, we rolled out courses, um, which for me was really about, it wasn't about making money at all. We never made any money out of courses. It was more about connecting with the community and learning stuff and, and you know, having time where Greenspoon was a very human uh, business right because I'd be at all the courses or Miller would be there and and it was fantastic but it's a little bit of a distraction from the main aim of the business and um, this year I think we'll, we will you know do far fewer courses if we do them at all because I've realized and I think this is what happens with startups and with businesses that you go through you try things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't and you shouldn't be afraid to say, actually, you know, that was a bit of a distraction. People still want some courses, so we will do some, but we'll do far fewer. Yeah, yeah. That, that's fine. It's like you keep throwing things at a wall and just seeing if they'll stick. Yeah, and I know some people will find that really, like, that is so unprofessional. But I actually think that's life. Yeah. There's a question I forgot to ask you. Um, how was your first day of Greenspoon like? Do you remember it? Can you describe it? Yeah, I can because we. I really do remember it quite clearly. Um, Bertie was nine months old, and um, Saskia was two, and we had basically planned to launch at the beginning of July, and then I realised we weren't quite ready, so we decided first of September, 
is when we're going to launch. And it was just so exciting. Um, so Miller had started working for us, I think, 10 days before. This was in 2016? Yeah, 2016, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. And, um, and we'd, you know, gone in a lot of stock. Which you know, the container was well, you remember it, right? It was yes. really nicely done with all the shelving and everything. We yes. had our beautiful desks, everything was ready. <laughs> and we launched, and I think it was, uh, where did I, I must have, yeah, we launched with an email to every single contact I had, uh, you know, inviting them to unsubscribe if they didn't want to hear from us ever again. <laughs> but this is what we were doing, um, and obviously, went big on social media as well. And I think we got like four orders that day and it was just so exciting and also nail-biting me nerve-wracking because it was like, are we going to, like, is anyone even going to come to the website today? Um, and yeah, and then it was like, okay, good, We're, we can do this, you know, and we dispatched the next day and the customers were happy and more orders started coming in. Yeah, it was super, super exciting. I yeah. mean, you know, four orders now just is like, what? <laughs> Something is wow. wrong. <laughs> um, how did we even think that was okay? But it was It was good for a first day. Yeah. That was really awesome. We were chuffed. Um, and that first day was, it was just the most exciting thing. Yeah. I was so happy. Because I had basically spent from January that year preparing. So it had taken a good nine months of like building the website and chatting to supply. Look, it was not nine to five work because I had a baby to feed and a toddler to chase after and all that kind of stuff. But it was just going along slowly, slowly as I was, you know, growing the babies as well. Um, so, it had, you know, it felt like it had been a lot of preparation and yes. I was definitely ready. Mm. I was gagging for it. Yeah. You know, I was like, come yeah. on, we've got to get this live. We're ready. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic day. It was really exciting. Yeah, oh, that's so beautiful and nostalgic. Can you remember your first day of selling products? <sighs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, no, I can't. <laughs> so um, I was still taking classes, log classes at the time. And so I had started with juices. And I'd made a brochure of all the juices that we do. I don't even think I'd printed it. I think I just had like something I could send on WhatsApp. So I'd shared that with my mom and she shared that with my aunties. So it was still just relatives Yeah. <laughs> at the time who had an idea of, yeah, who had an idea that I was starting something. So yeah, I'd yeah come up with all these flavors. I think there were seven and one day I'm sitting in class and I think it was commercial law that we were doing. And then a phone started ringing in class. <laughs> um, so it just kept ringing and, you know, you start to look around like, okay, like pick up your phone. <laughs> like surely, you know, your ringtone. Like, yeah, like it's disrupting the class. And then it hit me. Oh my gosh, it, it's my phone. Because oh, no. I had got like a small kabambe. Oh, yeah. You know, the small <laughs> little phones that all you can do is like send a text and get a call on them. Yes. So I it just said, oh my gosh, that's that's my phone. So I quickly ran out of class and picked up the phone. And there was a lady on the other end and she asked me, uh, yes, I had that you make juices. I work with your aunt, Mokami. <laughs> and she sent me the info and. I mean, I hadn't even, I had not sold any by then. <laughs> I'd just been wow. sampling with my brothers and my parents. And so I had to, you know, put on this professional 
voice. And I'm like, yes, I do juices. <laughs> and we deliver in, you know, however number of days. What flavors would you like? I'm just like off the top of my head. <laughs> wow. I did not know what I was doing. And yeah, she had no idea that she was my first ever customer. I've actually never told her, which would be really interesting. Yes. And yeah, so from then on, I was like, yeah, I guess now I have an order. I have to make these juices. <laughs> because the thing is, I was so um, adamant about planning. Like I really, really wanted to have everything planned out and have everything right and have this concrete business plan and know exactly what would be doing, you know, a year or what from now. But it was actually that call that just forced me to start. Yeah, and yeah. I think there's like a big conversation around that, right? Because yeah. people will say, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, exactly. I'm not ready. And I know that uh, I would have launched in July were it not for Wiz saying, don't be ridiculous, like you totally don't look ready for this, give it another couple of months. Because I'm one of those people who's like, it'll do for now and we'll grow, you will change things as we grow. And there's a lot of people out there who are like, it's not quite perfect, I can't do it. And there's someone in between where you just need to say, or, or you get pushed by a customer yes. who's like, I'm ordering this from you, okay? So, so you go do it. Um, but I think it's always an interesting question because it brings out different personality types, doesn't it? And yes, I guess if you were does. studying yeah. law, then you're quite into the detail. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, since then, I've really appreciated learning along the way as well. Of course... Yeah. Um, I think a month later, I did have to sit down and write a business plan. <laughs> but um, I think hand in hand with planning it out and having goals and all that, there's also something beautiful about making mistakes along the way and letting the experience also teach you. Yes, yeah. yeah. There's that a lot that you, there's there's a lot that you just can't plan ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and you'll only learn it as you go. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of those things you can never quite predict is human behavior. Like you just can't, you know, there are some, there are some people who bought from us in that first three months, we've never seen them again, you know, and there are other people who I wouldn't have expected who buy every single week from us. And it's just so fascinating. And also, well, it's fascinating to try and understand why, but it's also important to let go of needing to know everything about why you know, sometimes things are happening. You can look at macro patterns and you can dive into the detail, but there will sometimes be things in life you just don't have the exact answer for. And yes. that's okay. You just got to move on. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I think the whole thing is just the most, like, crazy experiment. Life, basically. Yeah. I think it's a crazy experiment. <laughs> I think the analogy of the trampoline that you gave before is just, yeah... <laughs> Yeah, so that's so beautiful how you've grown from having the container in your garden um, and then you moved to Langata Link where you had another container and then yeah. had like a physical space as well. And then now getting your own uh, physical space and having even yeah, more capacity. I think that's that's a real indication of growth. So um, it's one of those typical things of me is that when we moved into the two containers at Langata Link, pretty much the day we moved in, I thought, 
oh no, this is not enough space. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that I'll be the last person to invest in capital, you know, because of lean startup and all that kind of stuff. But that was one of those examples where I should have thought just a little bit bigger um, because we were only at Langata Link for about seven or eight months and then we moved again. And that's expensive for a business. Like it would have, it was not ideal. Um, it's done now and that's cool. And we have like a premises and the two containers. Um, and we're definitely, you know, we've still got a little bit of room for growth, which is really important. So I think, um, you know, that the physical growth of a business can often be something you can underprepare for. And I definitely haven't thought uh, we, we, we would need more space than we did. But, you know, these things all happen for a reason. And I actually loved the time at Langata Link. It was a little too social for me. Like I always was chatting to everybody and not getting enough work done. Um, and now we're in a quieter space where um, it's a lot easier to, to get the graft done, you know. Mm -hmm. And I have this thing of, you know, where I'm balancing motherhood, being a wife and being an entrepreneur. So I actually only really get to the office at nine after I've dropped the kids at school. And then oftentimes I'm leaving at half past 12 to go and pick them up. So I've got like three and a half hours to get my main body of work done in a day. Yeah, actually, how do you juggle that? It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And then there are those days where a child is sick and you just have to drop everything, take them to the doctor. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to put some things in place, which mean that I'm not rushing from A to B all the time. And I really, you know, I listen to a lot of these podcasts where entrepreneurs talk about, like, I never take a meeting on a Monday, I don't do meetings in the mornings or whatever. And I've often tried to implement that sort of thing. But, you know, we're quite a long way from town. So when people need, well, when people say they're going to come for a meeting and it's an important meeting, you have to be flexible. You can't say, I'm only going to meet in the afternoons. You know, so I think... Uh, it is just a constant juggle and you know I've sort of whinged about it a bit to my mom and you know yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, and so on and then eventually I think I've just come around to accepting that this is life and actually it feels great to be busy uh, I would hate it any other way I'd be terrible at not having lots of things to do every day what I what I sort of struggle with is having a massive to-do list and never quite getting through enough of it so I try to like do a big to-do list on a Monday, break it down a bit, and, and then I take great pleasure in crossing it, crossing the tasks off when I've done them. And often a little psychological trick that I do, which is a bit naughty, is that I'll write a couple of things that I know I can get done in five minutes, so that already, like by 9.30 on a Monday, I've crossed off two things, and then I feel like I'm making my way into that list of to-do things, yeah. or things to do, rather. Mm -hmm. um, but I think... You know, that's why the kids are sometimes featured on our social media and stuff, because actually they are part of, they're part of life, they're part of the journey, they've been a massive part of the inspiration for me, um, and I think they kind of enjoy it, um, you know, being taste testers and stuff like that, um, and I think it's just part of revealing or being honest about the the very complex tapestry that is life, yes. especially as a mumpreneur, which is like an official term now. Wow. Um, and I think it's amazing that mumpreneur is a real thing because there's this recognition that there are uh, women out there who become mothers. And often a lot of mothers or, or women lose 
a lot of their identity when they become mums because it becomes all about the kids. And I'm a big believer in like there's still so much you can do if you want to, and it should be recognised. Mumpreneurs are out there, but they have kids, and you know, small kids can't take care of themselves. We still have to do that. Yes. Um, so you know, I mean, certainly for the the last sort of year and a half, I've managed to really cut down on working at night. Um, which I was terrible at to begin with, but it really disturbed my sleep. And then that has a negative impact on my diet. That has a negative impact on my brain power. So I've realized that she just stop working at seven. Well, I have to stop earlier because of kids' bath time. So I stop at like five, sometimes four. Um, That's very interesting because it's what I'm struggling with right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think, like, I really have noticed for myself that if I give myself that time to just chill in yes, the evenings, yeah. I sleep way better. Yes, and then in the yeah, day, I'm yeah. so much more productive. Yeah. The, the other little trick that I have is a standing desk. And yes, I've seen it. You've seen yeah. it, right? So physiologically, when you're on your feet, your body is kind of... Um, it's sending messages to your brain like, we're about to leave. So you work way more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So I will spend like, I'll spend some of the day on my feet working and then I'll get like a little tired or I want to change in my posture or whatever. Yeah. I don't want to get locked up, you know, because you can get a little locked up when you're standing and you can get locked up when you're sitting. But to change between the two is really cool. So I'll stand for a bit and then I'll sit for a bit and work from, you know, that position. And I just find that the, you know, I get so much done because I have to. Like, I I actually just don't have a choice. You know, I have got to get it done. I don't have time. I can't work until 10 p.m. because then I won't sleep. So whatever I get done in that time, great. Yeah. And then I try and put in a couple of hours in the afternoon. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there are other demands on my time. And I've become way more accepting of it. Yes. It's just life. I think as an entrepreneur, it's very easy to have very flexible hours and then kind of end up working all day because um, you, you're not, you don't have the same setup as, you know, going into the office, having a nine to five kind of job. It's like, oh, if I have spare time in the evening, I might as well just keep working. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think it's the best for your head. You know, you need that time, that space from your business. Um, and also, I think that also leads into a, a different kind of conversation, which is about the identity of yourself and the identity of your business. And at the beginning, I just think the two, and like for you, it's your name as well. Yeah. So <laughs> the two are so completely intertwined um, that you, almost your whole identity is your business, right? And then so all you ever think about is your business. And I think, you know, it just takes a bit of time to come to a space where you realize actually it's separate and I am who I am and the business is what it is. And I think that perhaps comes when you've got a team that's doing all the operational stuff. Yes, you can delegate. Yes, yes. In some ways. It might not be growing without you, but it's running without you. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I think inevitably there will be growth if you're able to delegate and then have people focusing on what they're really good at and you can also focus on other aspects yeah, of the exactly. business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what have been some of the most difficult choices or decisions that you've had to make regarding Greenspoon? Um, it's really hard to, to mm. pinpoint um, any particular ones, but I think 
one of the hardest things I find is that we can't take every single product on. Um, and oftentimes I really want to. Um, but that's where I get the guidance from the tasting table committee who will often say to me, look, you know, I probably would buy this product, but I wouldn't expect to see it on Green Spoon. And then it's, it's bringing me back to remembering our core values and our identity as a business. Um, and that is super helpful. I think you can, yeah, it's probably saying no. Like, I'm just not very good at saying no. I'm a yes person. Um, to most things in life and I think that works to your advantage to a certain degree but then there needs to be times when you remember the, the path that you're on because you can suddenly come to these crossroads or, or you know forks in the road where you can turn off the main path but then you're going to find yourself going down a rabbit hole that actually may not actually come to anything you know yeah yeah so that's those are probably yeah. the difficult okay. decisions for me it's when we have to say no to somebody yeah I don't like doing that um yeah but your core values always just keep you in check you yeah know? and I think it's more important to like if you can see your business as an entity that needs to grow in its own right then I think it's easier to separate yourself from that and separate your decision from yourself you know be able to say it's not personal it's just a, this is the business. This is what the business does. This, these are the core values. Um, you know, we can't stock your product or whatever it is. Um, so those are difficult decisions. And then also all the way along the road, people have said to me, why don't you have a physical shop? Why don't you have a physical shop? We've kind of gone down that rabbit hole of designing a beautiful space. And goodness, wouldn't I love it? Like, I'm, I, I love the aesthetic of a beautiful farm shop or something. But we set out to be an online platform. We set out to tell stories. Um, and it's you've almost got unlimited space on an online platform to tell stories. Whereas, you know, if you employ 20 people, you've now got to train them with 50 different stories. It's just not going to happen. So, um, again, it's that kind of like bringing yourself back to the core, remembering what you're all about and not getting too, going too far off the path. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're a pioneer in creating a platform for artisan businesses. Of course, with time, there are other shops that come up with the same kind of mission. How worried are you about competition, and how do you deal with competition? Um, I really try to just focus on what we're doing. Um, I do look at the competition and in many ways I'm so thankful and I'm so excited that there's more coming up to spread this message about understanding where your food comes from and supporting local businesses. I think that's really, really cool. Um, and in many ways, you know, it helps all of us. Um, competition can be really healthy because obviously like there's always a part of you that says I need to be better I need to be better and that's really good and very important um, but in terms of the wider mission of getting people to change the way they shop I think it's fantastic I really do like the more and more shops that can be supporting buy local um, as a philosophy um, the more and more shops that can be supporting truly sustainable products you know, I think that's really great. Yes. And what is your vision for the future of Greenspoon? It's going to be massive. <laughs> <laughs> Take over the world. Yes. Um, the bigger vision is to, is to become, you know, the absolute go-to 
uh, for really high quality locally made products, food products, um, and to grow our customer base, which is probably the hardest part of the business, I think. Um, but to, to, you know, to get people to just make the first purchase, it can take a long time. And that depends on what a customer's looking for. So sometimes, you know, customers just want to see you again and again and again on social to build up their confidence that you're, you're real, you're alive, you know, you can be trusted. And other, other customers are less risk averse and they'll just go on and make the first order and then they see how it is and hopefully they stick with us. Um, so yeah, the vision is is big. You know, we're we're nearly we've nearly done four years. Um, we've grown exponentially during that time. I think we can continue to grow like that. Um, I know that everybody cares about this message. I really do. Like in my heart of hearts, I think when people hear it, they say, "Of course I care." What they need to do next is look at how they behave around that. Like it, it's not enough just to think the thoughts. You have to go and do the deeds. Um, so I hope that we'll be a catalyst for that and that the business will grow around those core values. Yes. And what advice would you give someone who is starting their own company? The biggest piece of advice I would give somebody is probably plan as much as you can. Be brave. Try to surround yourself with people who are going to help you achieve your mission, whether that's your team or your friends and family. It's really, really, really important to have that support. That's very, very good advice. And what is one mantra or philosophy that you live by? You are what you eat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I should have guessed. <laughs> Simple, but yes. true. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think we should all live like that, and I hope that we will. It's been really, really nice talking to you Juliet. I've loved it and yeah. I think um, conversations are just so interesting and can lead us in all kinds of directions but it's been great speaking to you this morning yes thank you so much I just have to say I'm personally very very grateful for the platform that you've created through Greenspoon as I said before just thinking back to how I started at the market when you approached me, I think I was still, you know, planning to continue with the markets and just see how that goes, keep selling to individuals. So the platform that you created, honestly, has just played such a big role in our journey and getting us to where we are now, you know, stocking in so many other places. So I think a lot of producers and small businesses have really, really benefited from what you've created. Oh, thanks, could you yeah. do, but we wouldn't be anywhere without you, so <laughs> it's a mutual yeah. attitude. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, this is a lot of food for thought. I hope um, you find it helpful, especially if you're starting a business and you've got to learn a bit more about the amazing work that Greenspoon does with Juliet Kennedy. Uh, if you have any feedback on this episode, I would love to know. Please review it, rate it, and subscribe. And I shall see you in the next episode. Thank you so much.